0: Welcome to the Invictus Church podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. Well, welcome everybody to Invictus Church. This is week number one of our church. Happy birthday, Invictus Church, right? Yeah, very, very excited. I see tons and tons of new faces because almost all of you are new. And uh, so I'm really, really glad that you are here today, really glad that you've chosen to be a part of uh, this new movement of God. And uh, I pray that uh, you'll come back and uh, that you'll jump in and start serving and helping us get things rolling because uh, we truly do believe that the best is indeed yet to come. Uh, We believe that all the time, that uh, when God shows up and does something great, uh, he's just showing off a little bit, and he wants to show off a little more in the future, and uh, he just always reveals himself to be a great and wonderful God, doesn't he? All right. Well, today we are going to be starting this series called Q&A. It's going to be an interesting, kind of unique series where rather than a typical uh, type sermon that uh, I would normally preach, Uh, We're going to have little kind of almost mini-sermons. And um, I had a pastor when I was young told me, if you preach sermonettes, you're going to get Christianettes. And uh, today we're going to have a whole bunch of sermonettes, so hopefully you'll leave more than a Christianette uh, and and leave the full-blown thing. But a bunch of little small messages kind of strung together, all revolving around tough questions that people ask and uh, people have wondered. So we're going to have some rules for this series that will guide the way that uh, uh, I will be answering your questions, and uh, the rules are uh, we're going to take three steps. The first step is we're going to ask regarding the question, does Scripture address this question specifically or directly? Uh, There are lots and lots of things that we can ask that the Bible doesn't actually say anything about. And uh, so if the Bible doesn't directly address it, then we'll move on to the second step. And we're going to ask, is there a biblical principle that applies to this question? And if there is no clear biblical principle that applies to the question, then we're going to look at man's opinions. And how many of you understand that people are full of opinions, right? Everybody's got one and they all stink. You've all heard that before. And um, so uh, anyway, we've all got opinions and uh, lots and lots of Christians and theologians throughout the last couple of thousand years have had opinions. We'll talk about those opinions about these questions and uh, then we're going to do our best to uh, land where we believe that uh, God would have us land. So uh, with that said, um, we're going to start out. Uh, by addressing an appropriate question because we're asking, you know, does, does uh, the Bible specifically address questions? Um, well, we should answer the question. And first of all, uh, how do I know the Bible isn't fiction? Uh, I've had people ask me this over the years. And, and usually what they mean when they ask that question, how do I know the Bible isn't fiction, is they're asking, um, uh, hasn't science proven the Bible wrong? Have you ever had anybody challenge you with that? Say, yep, science proves that the Bible is wrong, and uh, so therefore the Bible is all fiction. It's made up. And so to clarify, what I want you to do is just watch this short video. Uh, This video is from Answers in Genesis. If you don't know who who they are, they are the people that do the Ark experience and the Creation Museum here in, uh, uh, well, not in Cincinnati. It's in Kentucky on the other side of the border, but we love them anyway. And um, so uh, this is a great video that does a better job of summarizing the word science and what does the word science actually mean? Uh, and then we'll dive a little more into this question. So let's watch this quick video.
1: Have you ever heard this? Billions of years ago, there was an explosion in space. Or 100,000 years ago, this happened or that happened. Or even in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Question. Question. How does anyone know? I mean, was anybody there to observe it? Well, actually somebody was, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Check this out. First of all, we need to recognize that there is a huge difference between observational science and historical science. Both are valuable, but very different. Let's define the two real quick, shall we? Observational science is simply when we observe something and experiment to draw conclusions. It involves repeatable experimentation and observations in the present. It's through observational science that we find cures for diseases and build space shuttles, stuff like that. Now, through historical science, we consider things that happened in the past, but they cannot be checked in the same way. I mean, we don't have access to the past like we do the present because, well, it's gone, right? All we really have is speculation, or at best, circumstantial evidences of past events based on what we see in the present. That's not to say that we can't make intelligent guesses about the past or form reasonable inferences from rocks or fossils in the present, but we certainly cannot directly test our conclusions because we cannot repeat the past. Got it? So, does that mean historical science is unimportant? Not at all. Let's drop an example down here for a minute and take a look at the Eiffel Tower. You know, that 19th century Parisian monument designed by Gustave Eiffel that stands 1,063 feet tall, which was built as the entrance for the 1889 World's Fair, and is still the tallest building in Paris today, visited by millions of people each year? Yeah, that one. Well, guess what? Everything I just told you was true, but how do we test it? Well, applying observational science, we can, of course, observe the Eiffel Tower anytime we're in Paris. It's here in the present. Then, we can continue by testing the height and comparing it to all the other structures in Paris and confirm the claim that it is indeed the tallest building in Paris. But that's the extent of the kind of facts that can be proved by observational science in reference to this claim. How do we really know that Gustav designed it? How do we really know it was built in the 19th century as an entrance to the 1889 World's Fair? How do we really know how many people visited? That's all in the past. It can't be repeated. For that kind of information, we need to go outside the limits of observational science and discover what has been communicated to us through historical documents and eyewitness accounts. And furthermore, we have to believe those eyewitnesses and documents are trustworthy. The same is true when we talk about the origin of the Earth. The Earth is here. We all agree with that. So, does observational science confirm that the world was created by God, and are there trustworthy documents and eyewitness accounts that confirm it? Well, let's take the last part first. In short, what we're really asking is my original question, was anybody there to observe it? The answer is yes. God was there, and He told us how He created. He inspired people to write down His very words that became books that were compiled into a complete book called the Bible, which has been verified over and over again and has demonstrated itself to be totally trustworthy in all it claims and teaches. Even secular scholars will concede that the Bible accurately records historical events. Anyway, we have the most trustworthy revelation from the most trustworthy eyewitness. Now, what about observational science? Does it confirm the Bible? Yes. And what's extremely important to realize is the observable fact that the universe is logical and orderly. That makes sense only if its creator is logical and has imposed order on his creation. It doesn't make sense at all if the universe is just an accident of a huge explosion. Also, our minds are able to comprehend many things about the universe. And that's only possible if the creator of the mind gave us the ability and desire to explore the universe. It doesn't make sense if our brains are byproducts of chance because we couldn't trust their conclusions to ever be accurate. And lastly, It only makes sense that we can observe and repeat an experiment if the universe consistently obeys the same laws from day to day, which only makes sense if a lawgiver created it that way and upholds it. So to be bluntly honest, science itself, whether observational or historical, is only possible because God exists and the Bible is true. I could go on, but enough said.
0: All right, wasn't that good? That does a lot better job explaining a whole lot of stuff in a short amount of time than I possibly could. Um, But uh, what we understand is science, really, there's two sides of it, historical science and observational science, and you can't prove the Bible wrong or not wrong using observational science because it's in the past, so we have to depend on historical science. That's eyewitness accounts, uh, that's other documents outside of Scripture that corroborate it and those kinds of things, and no one in human history, uh, for the last 2,000 years since Christianity began... Has been able to disprove the Bible. Lots of people claim they have, but when you get right down to it, they haven't been able to legitimately disprove the Bible. In fact, here's what most of the time happens when people set out to really study the scripture and determine whether or not it's true or false, they become believers. This happened to a friend of mine uh, in Santa Fe, New Mexico. My wife and I, in the year 2000, planted a church in Santa Fe, and um, a uh, a little, tiny, short Japanese woman named Misako Moreno came in. She married a really tall Hispanic guy that was in the Navy, and uh, so she comes in with this really tall guy, comes in named Vince, and uh, she's this little, tiny person. I mean, I almost couldn't see her. She was so short. And uh, she had become a believer because she was working at a hotel, and somebody there was a Christian, and that Christian was sharing the gospel with her, the, the story of, of Christ, and she said, and I'm not making fun of her, okay? She knows I do this impersonation, and she approves, all right? So uh, anyway, she says, oh, all you Christians think everybody else is going to hell. I'm going to buy a Bible and prove you wrong. And so she bought a Bible, and she began to study the Bible, and she went back to work about three weeks later, and she told that guy, I'm a Christian now. What do I do? <laughs> and uh, this is what God does through his word. The Bible can be trusted because it is not fiction, all right? And so that leads us to our question, why should I follow the Bible's teachings? And again, I've got a short uh, video for you to watch. This is with a guy named Frank Turek, and uh, I'm going to refer to one of his books later on in uh, this message, so you might want to jot down his name, Frank Turek, T-U-R-E-K, and um, uh, he's got a great, great book called I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and uh, I'll probably refer to that several times during this series Uh, a great book for you to uh, jot down and pick up Uh, order that on Amazon get it on your Kindle whatever however you prefer to uh, digest your reading material it is definitely worth the read it's even on audible if you like to listen to books so uh, anyway let's watch this video with Frank Turek
2: Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. My name is Bobby Conway. I'm here with Dr. Frank Turk. Good to be with you. Bobby, always great to be with you. For only one minute, though. Yeah, that's right. Let's be (laughs) tight here. That's right. A lot of people are skeptical of God's Word. Uh Why can we trust the Bible? Well, let me give you a real short answer because it's true and there's evidence for it. First of all, we know God exists there's evidence that the universe exploded into being out of nothing so if the first verse of the bible is true every other verse is at least believable so we live in a theistic universe i mean if god exists it's possible he rose jesus from the dead so anti-supernaturalism is unwarranted when we have the first verse in the bible as being true Maybe the other verses are true. Now, there's a lot of evidence we cover in our book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But briefly, one of the most persuasive pieces of evidence to me as to why the Bible is true is because there's embarrassing testimony in it. Mm -hmm. These New Testament writers wouldn't have made themselves out to look like stupid, uncaring, rebuked cowards who ran away while the brave women were the discoverers of the empty tomb. What man would have made that up? Nobody would have made that up. Men wrote it down and said that they were fearful, they were rebuked, Their leader was called Satan by Jesus. Their leader denied Christ three times. And then they run away while the brave women go down and discover the empty tomb. You wouldn't have made that up. I wouldn't have made that up. No man
0: would have made that up. That's just good evidence that they were really telling the truth. All right. Wasn't that good for just a, a minute long? That's one of my favorite YouTube channels is One Minute Apologist. Uh, however, they don't ever live up to their word of it being one minute. That was one minute, 27 seconds, so just saying. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, there are, are two reasons primarily to follow the Bible's teachings, and uh, maybe you're not convinced yet, but I'm going to say it. Uh, the first reason that you should follow the Bible's teachings is because it is true, uh, because it's true. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. The Bible, trusting the Bible is not a matter of faith because the Bible is actually an object of Of faith. This object, the Bible, has been proven trustworthy over and over and over and over again. And so it is worthy of our trust and our faith. Uh, Science has confirmed that the Bible is true. When we look at scientific uh, things in Scripture, the way that the world is described, um, science has confirmed that it is indeed true. Science has uh, at least historical science and uh, astronomy and that sort of thing has demonstrated that the world did, that the universe did appear out of nothing. And that comes straight, like Frank Turek just addressed, from the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, there was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. Came from nothing. Uh, the doctrine uh, that we call in Christianity of ex nihilo, it came from nothing. That's Latin, for means from Nothing. And um, uh, it, 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 it is at least believable because of the first verse of Scripture. But over and over and over, we see example after example after example throughout Scripture. And because I have to do this kind of popcorn message, I don't have the time uh, to share with you a bunch of those examples. But you can certainly uh, look these up on the Internet, and you will be overwhelmed with them. Uh, ways that the Bible has been proven true by science uh, by prophecy, um, fulfilled prophecies, uh, that is overwhelming evidence, by the way, uh, of the, uh, the reliability of Scripture. Um, just the, the, the numbers involved in fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament to the New Testament, specifically in the life of Jesus. Uh, if, if you uh, play the lottery ever, and you don't believe the Bible, you're nuts, because you're playing the odds with the lottery, right? And the odds are even more astronomical that prophecies would have been fulfilled, and yet in the life of Jesus, prophecies are fulfilled to the exact detail, hundreds of them. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is overwhelming evidence that Scripture is indeed true. And 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, tells us this. All Scripture is God-breathed, And useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The first reason to follow the Bible is because it is true. Second reason, write this down, is because it is in your best interest. It's in your best interest. Uh, Anybody here, a parent? You can raise your hands. Yeah, your parents. uh, You ever have a child that wanted to touch something hot? And what did you do? Don't touch that. Don't touch that. And uh, yet, what did they still want to do? They still wanted to touch it. I'll never forget when my second child, Landry, I've got three boys, they're all teenagers now, uh, but my middle son, Landry, he was about one and a half, and he had this fascination with the stove, and he just always wanted to touch it, and always wanted to touch the oven, and you're like, no, don't touch that, stay away, and so I was uh, pulling something out of the oven. Henry was way on the other side of the kitchen. I thought there's no way he can get over here and touch this oven door while it's laying down. I've got time to turn around, set this on the counter, and close the door. And somehow, this kid learned how to be the flash, and in just an instant, he had made it across the kitchen, and while I'm still setting it on the counter, I hear this 18-month-old child start screaming bloody murder, uh, because he had placed his hand flat on the open uh, oven door and had nice blisters and all of that fun stuff. Um, Parents tell their children not to do things and to do certain other things because it's in their best interest, right? How many of you have ever told your kid, don't jump on the bed uh, because You wanted them to not get hurt, right? (laughs) And and, the, the mean parent would be like, jump all you want, man. Aim for the ceiling. Try to bash your head on it. In fact, jump near the edge, son, where you might slip off and break your arm. That would be great, right? We try to protect our kids. It's in their best interest to listen to us and to pay attention to us. And God is our heavenly father. The scripture describes him as a loving, perfect, generous, Patient, full of mercy, full of grace, Father, who wants what is best for us. It is in our best interest. Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about God's word. The longest chapter in the Bible is about the Bible. It's about how trustworthy God's teachings are. Look at what uh, Psalm one nineteen one oh five 105 says. Your word, speaking of God's word, is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Has anybody ever stubbed their toe in the middle of the night by not turning on the lights? Right? Uh, thank God for the iPhone, right? As soon as that was invented, we don't have to turn all the bright lights. You just call up your phone and shine a light unto your path, right? So that you can see and not break your toe and cuss in the middle of the night. Because none of us do that. We're Christians, right? Um, But uh, uh, you you need light so that you can see what you're doing, where you're going. Scripture is like that in our lives. It provides light so that we can see where we should step next and what God's will and his ideal plan for our lives uh, is and, and, and what he wants for us. It's in our best interest. Now, again, uh, I I'd encourage you to read I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's by Frank Turek, and uh, his uh, partner who wrote the book with him is a guy named Norman Geisler. And uh, they have a phenomenal way of uh, illustrating just step by step by step and st- by step how trustworthy and accurate the Bible really, really is. So let's jump into a fun question, all right? I get this one a lot. Uh, is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? Should Christians get tattoos? Uh, Anybody here have a tattoo? You can raise your hand. Tattoos all over the room and uh, hands up all over the place. And uh, those of you who are not raising your hands, you're either lying or you don't have tattoos, right? And um, how many of you don't have tattoos because you're scared of needles? That's me, man. I would totally get them, but I am the world's biggest chicken. All right, Uh, so I have lots of people tell me, you've got to get an Invictus Church tattoo. And uh, maybe I will one day. In fact, I've offered a dollar to the first person that gets an Invictus tattoo. So I might get to pay myself. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not rich, so it's a dollar, right? You know, hey, enjoy your pack of gum, or maybe stick of gum, whatever you can afford with it. Uh, But uh, should a Christian get a tattoo? Uh, Ultimately, I agree with a comedian that I heard once. Uh, about the reasoning behind not getting a tattoo. He said, uh, uh, I'm afraid of pain, and I'm afraid of commitment. Two good reasons not to get a tattoo, right? Because you're committed once that sucker's on there, right? Um, uh, Let's look at what the Bible says. Does the Bible specifically address this? Well, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 28, the Bible says these words, Never cut your bodies in mourning for the dead, or mark your skin with tattoos, for I am the Lord. Well, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? It seems pretty cut and dried. The Bible says don't get a tattoo. And uh, I've had a lot of people uh, throw this verse out there and say, man, if you're a Christian, you should not get a tattoo. The Bible says don't get a tattoo. Look at what the Bible also says, all right? Leviticus 19, same chapter uh, in uh, verse 19, 26, and 27. It says, do not plant your field with two kinds of seed. Do not wear clothing woven from two kinds of fabric. Anybody here wearing a cotton blend today? Never eat meat that has not been drained of its blood. Anybody like a rare steak? That's the only way to eat a steak is when there's a little bit of red in the middle. I'm just saying. Um, Do not trim off the hair on your temples or clip the edges of your beards. Well, I'm in trouble because I can't grow anything from here to here. I have a bald spot on both sides of my face. So God trimmed it for me. So if I'm going to follow this particular passage of scripture, I'm in real trouble. Uh, Anybody here shave your sideburns off? Yeah, I mean, violating scripture, just saying, the Bible says it, it's really clear. Well, What does that mean? Why does the Bible say these things, and why is it that we um, have a way of kind of picking and choosing the things that we're going to follow and the things that we don't? But scripture says that men shouldn't have long hair, and that women shouldn't have short hair, and that they should have their hairs, head covered up in church. But I don't see a hat on a single woman in here. So are we just saying, ah, oh, we only want to... Uh, uh, follow some of the Bible and not other parts of the Bible? Are we hypocrites? Are we uh, just inconsistent? What's, what's the deal here? Well, we have to understand the context of Scripture to understand what it means for us today. How many of you understand that the Bible was written in an ancient world, and it was a world that was vastly different than the world that we're in now? You get that, right? Um, so we have to ask the questions when we are interpreting Scripture What did it mean to the person who it was written to? The people that it was written to at that time, it had very specific meaning. And the people who read the book of Leviticus when it was originally written, uh, the the, uh, Israelites, they understood that all of these things in Leviticus chapter 19 all have to do with worshiping false gods. And they were given the Ten Commandments by God. Moses went up on uh, Mount Sinai, came down with the Ten Commandments, and the first two, anybody know what they are? Putting you on the spot. What are the Ten Commandments? The first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? You should worship no other god but God, and make for yourself no graven images. And then the third one has to do with our relationship with God. Anybody know what that one is? honor the sabbath day and keep it holy the first three of the ten commandments all have to do with our relationship with god and two of them have to do with not worshiping other gods now these things outlined in leviticus 19 were habits of people who were not followers of yahweh the one true god of the israelites they were following many many false gods and they did all of these things and so getting a tattoo in the time that Leviticus was written, meant that you were doing it to worship another god. People didn't get tattoos because they thought they were cool. They got tattoos in this context because it was an act of worship to a false god. So we have to understand that context in order to understand what does it mean for us today. What's the principle in here? The principle is this. Don't worship anybody but the one true God. That's it. Now, can you go get a tattoo today and go down the street and get a tattoo here on Coleraine, there's a couple places, uh, and still love the Lord God and believe in only one true God? Absolutely. Context of our culture has changed. There are many Christians, I've got Christians on my staff who have tattoos, and I'm okay with that uh, because uh, Scripture makes it clear that the important thing here is the principle behind what scripture says anybody who throws it in your face that you shouldn't have tattoos when they go to church they need if they're a lady they need to be wearing a hat if they're a guy they got to have short hair and they cannot use two different kinds of seeds in the same field when they're planting uh, they can't wear a cotton blend <laughs> it, it, they would better stick to every single word if they're going to throw that one back in your face everybody clear on that all right here we go Uh, I'm just going to address this real quick regarding tattoos. I think there are several reasons that you shouldn't get a tattoo, and there are several reasons that you might consider getting a tattoo. Uh, First of all, uh, you, you may appear rebellious to some people if you get a tattoo. Uh, my wife was, uh, uh, in, uh, had a job in Texas when we lived there. We lived in New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, and now we're out here in Ohio. And um, uh, when we were in Texas, she was interviewing a lady who had a whole bunch of visible tattoos. And <clears throat> as an interviewer, she came home and she was like, you know, I just have to say, honestly, I'm a, I was a little biased. It was distracting, and I wondered, is she going to be as good as an employee as the other people? Now, was that fair of my wife? Maybe not, but I've had those same kind of judgments about people. I mean, we all fail and make judgments based on the way people appear. Somebody shows up to a job interview wearing jeans, you're probably less likely to... Uh, have a further conversation with that person than maybe the guy that shows up wearing khakis or a suit and tie, right? Uh, But if he's getting a job at McDonald's, he shows up in a suit and tie, that's probably also not appropriate. You know, maybe he's overqualified or just delusional. And, And so we make judgments on appearance all the time. And you have to understand that that's the way people are. It's not necessarily fair. It's not necessarily right. But people will judge you Based on your appearance. And so so that's something to consider if you're going to get a tattoo. Another thing you ought to consider is that it can be dishonoring to the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I mean by that, scripture says that when we are followers of Jesus, when we are Christians, the Spirit of God lives within us. Our body becomes the temple or the house of God. And we have to ask ourselves what do you want us to do with this, Lord? Now, if you get something that is a tattoo that's not honoring to God, then you're dishonoring him in his temple. And it's pretty permanent. It's hard to get rid of a tattoo. Uh, Laser removal is not 100%. And so you've got to really consider these things before you get a tattoo. The third one is you're making a permanent decision. Uh, Again, the the laser thing, you can get it done, but most people don't want to spend a whole lot of money. It's way more expensive to get rid of a tattoo than to get one. And there's not a 100% uh, uh, guarantee that you're going to be able to get rid of it. So uh, if you get your favorite band right now tattooed on your arm, I mean, had I done that in the 80s, I'd have Mr. Mister (laughs) right here, okay? It's not like anybody today is going, oh, dude, Mr. Mister, yeah, right? Um, Or Striper, I was really into Striper when I became a Christian, the first heavy metal Christian band. They had the hairspray and the spandex, and they looked like women, and I had their big poster hanging on my wall, yellow and black attack. Man, it was not awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, if I had a Striper tattoo, I would be embarrassed, right? And so we have to realize that it is a permanent decision. Now, reasons to get a tattoo. Just to be fair, uh, there's, there's a couple things that you might consider there. Uh, uh, tattoos aren't specifically identified with idol worship today. And so it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I believe that according to Scripture, it's okay. Uh, but another reason that you might consider get, getting a tattoo is tattoos can be a great way to witness to people. can be a great way to share your faith with people. Um, tattoos almost always have a story. When I meet people with tattoos, I always ask the question what's the story behind your tattoo? Because they love to talk about their tattoos. It's a great way to get to know somebody and learn a little bit about them. And uh, some of them might be, well, I made this terrible mistake, and that tattoo actually hides another one, you know? And so you learn a little bit about them. Or they say, oh, well, this, this means something to me, and this is my kid's birth date, or uh, whatever, or this is my favorite verse of scripture. If I were going to get a tattoo, here's what I would get. I would get Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tattooed Right here and right here, I'd put five on this arm and six on this arm, and I would get it in, uh, printed in a font called Oribesh. If you know what Oribesh is, you are my people. That is the Star Wars alphabet. Um <laughs> And I would do that because I have been a rabid Star Wars fan since it came out in 1977. If you uh, go down this uh, hall to the ladies' room, the upstairs ladies' room, right next to that is my office, you're going to see all my Star Wars junk in there. I've got lightsabers hanging on the wall, a giant AT-AT, Millennium Falcon. Most pastors have pictures of Republicans and Jesus in their office. I have Star Wars stuff, and um, uh, I'm a Star Wars nut, and I love to talk about Star Wars. I also love to talk about Jesus and God's word, and so I think it would be really interesting to have Orobesh alphabet here printed on my arms with um, a verse of scripture that has been my life verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on under your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Uh, that those verses have guided me since I became a Christian when I was 15 years old, and still guide me today, and what a great conversation starter, right? And it would be unique and weird, and I'm a geek, and I'm okay with that. So uh, anyway, uh, there we go. Uh, all right, next to this, this, this one is a little bit more controversial, and uh, so, so brace yourself. Is it okay to get breast implants? Yeah, we're talking about that in church. Poke the person next to you and said, he just asked that. You can do that, right? He just actually said, next week, brace yourself, If you're uncomfortable hearing this question, next week's going to make you really uncomfortable. So I'm just going to say this ahead of time. Next week's message is rated PG-13, and we are going to have PG-13 notes hung up on the doors and whatnot as you're coming in. So you are going to want to, for sure, check your kids in to the kids' ministry next week. If you brought your kid in with you today, that's fantastic. Glad they're here. But next week, I wouldn't want my kid to hear what I'm going to be talking about next week. There are going to be sexual... uh, uh, conversations happening in here, okay? We're not afraid to talk about that because the Bible teaches about it and talks about it, and uh, uh, God created it, and it's good just saying. Um, And uh, so we're going to talk about that and celebrate it and all of that fun stuff, but uh, you probably don't want to bring the little ones in. So if this one makes you uncomfortable, you're going to be really uncomfortable next week. Uh, People ask the question, is it okay to get plastic surgery? And uh, many times they're really asking that question, is it okay to get some enhancement? Well, we ask the question, what does the Bible say about that? In Genesis 51 verse 1, we find so Ephraim's wife departed for a season of time, and upon her return, Ephraim found that was once that what once has had been as apples was now as melons. That's really not in the Bible. There is no Genesis fifty-one. ADV is the Alan Danielson version of the Bible. Um, that's not really there. Scripture does not address this because plastic surgery had not been invented. Um, so. So what's the principle? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) What's the principle behind this? Well, the issue is not whether or not it's a sin to have plastic surgery. The issue is the why behind having plastic surgery. Uh, Proverbs 31.30 says this, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Um, Beauty... On the outside, wears out. I don't look nearly as good as I used to. In the 80s, man, I had the hairspray mullet. It looked like a firecracker had gone off right here. I hide all the pictures of it. You're not going to find them. And my hair was way down here in the back. It was, it, mine was party in the front and party in the back, just for the record. Uh, but I had the hairspray mullet. I wore the tight, acid-washed gray jeans and the gray cowboy boots. And, um, man, I looked good for 1987. Um, but thank God I don't dress like that today. Uh, one, I couldn't fit into that in my life, Dependent on it. I just don't think I could pull off a mullet anymore. But, um, you know, we change the way that we look over time. And uh, as you get older, uh, things start to relocate. And, you know, parts of the body don't look quite like they used to look. And your face gets more gray hairs and more wrinkles, and uh, you may be smiling, but you don't really look like it because you've got so many lines on your face, still look like you're frowning. Um, you know, beauty changes over time, but what matters is our character. First Chronicles 28.9 says, the Lord searches every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. The Lord searches our hearts and pays attention to what's going on in here. So, my answer to this question is uh, Is it okay to have plastic surgery? Is it okay to get breast implants? Is why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you're finding your identity in other people's approval of you? Are you doing it because you're finding your identity in the way that you look and how you feel about your looks? Or is your identity found in Jesus? You see, if your identity is I am a Christ follower and Jesus is the centerpiece of my life, then it won't matter what you look like. That's good. You could get in an accident tomorrow and you could be completely disfigured and you'd be okay because you'd say, you know what, I mourn that I'm not looking like I used to look and it would be sad and frustrating and difficult, but I'd be okay because my identity is not... In this temporary body, my identity is in Jesus. And what does Jesus say about us? We are loved. That when we are in Christ, we have become perfect. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. When we are in Christ... We are loved and accepted and forgiven, and God has given us his grace and his mercy. Nothing can separate us from him, and no matter how difficult life can be, no matter how frustrating and uncomfortable and difficult things get and painful things are, I can make it because Jesus is the centerpiece of my life. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So answer the question for yourself. Where does your identity come from? And I think that will answer the question whether or not you ought to get plastic surgery. All right. Is it okay? This is a, a related question. Is it okay to wear sexy clothes? Is it okay to dress kind of provocatively and come in, you know, you know, um, <clears throat> is that all right? Well, First Timothy 2.9 says, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves. Now, why didn't Paul say this about men? cuz men don't look good. I'm just saying if you ever stood here's a man, here's a woman. P- pretty? Mmm. hairy, smelly, I just don't yeah, no, I mean it, it, also men and women are are uh aroused differently. Very seldom does a woman look at a man and go Oh my gosh. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a different thing, right? Um, Women are aroused and interested in men based on the way those men treat them and how how compassionate or loving or generous or gentle that person can be. Uh, Men get turned on with these devices right here, eyeballs, right? Uh, As soon as they're open in the morning, they're like, "Mm, hmm, yeah, (laughs) woo, all right? And um, uh, we've all heard that why Adam called. Uh, Eve, woman, right? Uh, because he saw and he said, "Whoa, man, right? Uh, guys are just turned on by looks. That's the way guys are wired." Um, and and so God is saying to women, "Guys are perverts. Help them out." Right? He, he's saying that. First Peter three three through four says, "Your beauty should not come from outward adornment. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth." in God's sight. So I ask again, if, if you're wondering, is it okay for me to dress a particular way and, and you know wear a low-cut shirt or really tight pants or whatever, um, it, my question for you is, why do you want to dress that way? This comes back to that plastic surgery question. Is it because you're a, your uh, identity comes from the approval of other people or is there something else involved? Is there something else going on there? Uh, you have worth... Apart from your appearance, you have intrinsic value because Jesus created you and loves you and died for you and wants you and desires you and wants to make you better than you are. Matthew 18, 7 says this, how terrible it will be for anyone who causes others to sin. Temptation to do wrong is is inevitable, but how terrible it will be for the person who does the tempting. We're going to be judged for the way that we live in this life. Amen. And the Lord says, we've got to be careful the way that we live. We don't want to cause other people to trip up and stumble. Yeah. We've got to watch ourselves. So these are some good reasons to watch the way that we dress. We need to find our identity in Christ, not our looks, and not in people's approval. All right, here's another question that we're going to jump into. Um, why does God seem so different in the Old and New Testaments. Have you ever had somebody throw that up as an, object, an objection, maybe you're trying to share your faith with somebody or talk to them about God, and they say, well, I don't believe in God, and especially this old Christianity thing, because you got these two testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God's grumpy and angry and judgmental and harsh and killing people all over the place. In the New Testament, he's sweet and kind, and it's like God is bipolar. So, you know, what, what, what's his damage? What's the problem there? Um, and my answer to this question is, God isn't different In the Old and New Testaments. When we read the entire Bible, we find that he is consistent throughout, that when people throw out this question, they're just objecting to something based on what they think they've heard or think they understand. But when you really begin to look at Scripture, you find that the character of God is described in one word, and that one word is holiness. Everybody say holiness. Holiness is one word that is actually made up of two words. There's two components to holiness. The one component is love. That's the component we really like. We're like, God is love. And we, we love love. It's, you know, there's songs written about it. Uh, and very few songs make great hits when they're about judgment. Right? I mean, we don't write those songs because we don't like the other half of holiness. The other half of holiness is justice. God is a just God, but God is a loving God and those two things are like two sides of the same coin. They make up holiness, and God's character is holy. He is 100% loving. He also is also 100% just, and we need to love the justice side and be as excited about that side as we are the love side, and here's why. Have you ever seen something wrong that happened, and you're just like, man, I want to do something about that. Somebody ought to... Somebody ought to fix that. That's unjust. That's unfair. That's wrong. I can't believe that happened. You ever felt that? Um, I was watching a Netflix series called Making a Murderer, and uh, the, the first episode really got me because this guy had been wrongly convicted of a crime and spent 18 years in prison for it. And there's like, somebody ought to do something about that. He lost 18 years of his life. You want justice to be done. Well, Scripture says that one day God is going to make everything right. All the stuff that is wrong in the world, all the stuff that's broken in the world, all of the injustice and the sadness and the frustration and the hurt, God is going to make right one day. Shouldn't we be glad about that? We should worship him because he is a God of justice and he's a God of love. If he was only a God of justice, you know what hope you and I would have? (coughs) Zip. No hope. But because God is love, there's great hope for us. We see God's justice and his love in both the Old and New Testament. God's justice is shown in Hosea 4, 5 through 6. I'm not going to read these to you, but I encourage you to go back and, and read these yourself, uh, maybe this week as you're studying scripture. And uh, if you don't have that habit, I encourage you to do that. So here are some ways that you can read about the character of God this week, just in your own private time. Uh, and in the New Testament, we see Acts 5, 1 through 11, where God strikes somebody dead. Because they said they gave a bunch of money to church, and they didn't. These people lied about their offering, and God smote them, right? Uh, they walk into church, and they're like, oh, yeah, we gave a whole bunch of money. in." God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of love. We see this in the Old Testament in Joel 2.13. And in the New Testament, one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Because of God's love, we can escape the justice that we deserve. And we see that in both the Old and the New Testament. So why does God seem so different in the Old and New Testament? Because he just seems that way. When you really study it, it's not that way at all. All right, last question for today. Jump right in here to the last question. Is there an unpardonable sin? Is there a sin that I can commit that God won't forgive? This is a pretty heavy topic. Um, Many people, or many times the, the... The real question behind the question is, can those who have committed crimes such as murder, selling drugs to kids, sex offenses, child abuse, can those people sincerely ask God's forgiveness and be truly forgiven? Is there actually redemption for those people? And then how should a Christian treat those people? Uh, So it's kind of a loaded question. Uh, Another question behind the question is, have I messed up maybe unintentionally and I'm hoping I'm going to heaven, but I'm really not. And a lot of people worry, and they question whether or not they are saved, whether or not they are actually going to heaven when they die, and and they wrestle with that. And, you know, I'm trying to live a good life, trying to be a good person, but did I really blow it somewhere in my past, and maybe even not even on purpose? And, and, and God's just going, oh, sorry, you missed it, man. I, I told you to eat Cheerios, and you ate cornflakes, so you're out. You know, is, is there some kind of... The sin I don't know about that I need to be worried about. Well, there is a a sin in scripture that's described that uh, many times people talk about this, and uh, there's, I'm just going to say, throughout the centuries, there's been very literal agreement uh, in Christianity about what this means. Okay? So this is one of those verses of scripture that's confusing. And difficult for us to understand. And um, uh, the scripture doesn't directly address the question, is there an unpardonable sin? Because the scripture doesn't say, and here's the unpardonable sin, owning a cat. Right? The Bible doesn't say that. Uh, even though those of you who own cats, I'm praying for your wretched souls. Um, I'm just kidding. I actually like cats. I make fun of cats a lot. And people get offended by that. And my answer to that is, it's a joke. All right? Relax, it's a joke. So, anyway, um, uh, the Bible isn't really clear on this. Is there an unpardonable sin? Except that it says this in Matthew 12, 31 through 32. And Jesus is speaking here. And so, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so, Uh, Is there an unpardonable sin? When we look at scripture, I guess you would say, well, yes, it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But then that begs the question, well, what's that? And that's where scripture's unclear. Now, the scripture goes on to say, and Jesus said this because the Pharisees had attributed his miracles to someone, uh, to Satan, and so they're toasts, right? Um, But what exactly is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? There's a lot of debate around this. Now, the golden rule for interpreting Scripture is you have to interpret Scripture in light of other Scriptures. If you take a verse of Scripture and um, uh, let's just make something up, and it said, uh, Thou shalt not eat donuts, um, it would seem pretty cut and dried, right? Don't eat donuts. But then you find out in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians that the Corinthian church had a habit of bringing in Krispy creams for everybody to eat before church. And that Paul was okay with that. And what Paul's like saying, hey, when you're having your Krispy creams, just be sure you don't hog them all so everybody gets one. The scripture would be weird and unclear, wouldn't it? Because in one part it's saying don't eat donuts but in another part he's saying, hey, it's cool eat your donuts but make sure everybody gets one. So, what, what is Scripture really saying here, all right? There, there are parts of Scripture that seem like, well, there's this clear thing around about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but then there are other uh, passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that God forgives all sin, and that seem to indicate that very, very clearly. So what do we believe? Well, in Second Samuel 11, 3 through 17, David committed adultery and premeditated murder, But David in the book of Acts in 13.22 was called a man after God's own heart. And so there's this this two sides to this story. Well, which is he? Is he this horrible, wretched sinner or is he a man after God's own heart? And the answer is yes. He's both. Um, So uh, look at what uh, Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news, because if we're honest, most of us fit in there somewhere. Remember, Jesus says, if you gonna look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So if you've ever gone, whoa, just kept leering and looking or thinking or focusing, and you're an adulterer. Jesus said, if you hate someone, you've murdered them in your heart. So most of us are adulterous murderers. We're like King David, aren't we? The Scripture is clear on this point. None of those people are going to get into heaven. But then it says this, and that is what some of you, what's that next word? were and that is what some of you were but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and by the spirit of our god when jesus died on a cross he did it for a reason and the reason is this remember god is a god of justice you and i deserve to be punished for our sins because God makes all things right. And when you do something wrong, God's gonna make it right. Because He's a God of justice. And remember, we're glad about that fact. Jesus, scripture says, God loved us so much, He sent Jesus to die in our place, to die for us. So when Jesus died on the cross, He died taking the punishment you and I deserve. And the way we escape. The justice of God is by accepting Christ's punishment on our behalf. I accept that gift. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. When we accept what Jesus did for us and we say, I'm going to be your follower, Jesus. I'm going to trust you to save me. Because I'm not good enough to get there. I'm on this list of sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, homosexual offenders, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. I'm, I'm in there. There's no hope for me. But in Christ there is hope. He's writing, Paul is writing in this passage that we just read to Christians. To people who had trusted in Christ. So they were those other things. But in Christ they are perfect. They have been redeemed. They have been washed. They have been sanctified, which means you're being changed and becoming more like Christ. They have been justified, which means it's just as if I'd never sinned. Jesus took away my sins, cleaned my slate. I don't owe anybody anything for those sins anymore. They are forgiven. It's as if I had never sinned. We have been made perfect in the eyes of God. So obviously there's, Forgiveness for sin, even horrible sins. So, then what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? This comes down to opinions because there isn't another place in scripture where we can corroborate and you know what exactly does this mean. And so, what I'm going to share with you is what I believe that it means. This is my opinion, and it's my opinion based on what I've studied. In scripture and the conclusions that I've come to about the character of God and the nature of God. So I believe it's an educated opinion, but I could be wrong. So I'm just saying, here's my opinion. I believe blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the only unforgivable sin, is the sin of saying no to the Spirit of God when he's calling you and saying, admit your sin, confess your sin to Jesus, and accept him as your Savior. When God says, do something, and you don't do it, is it a sin? Yeah. So if God says, turn from your wicked ways and follow me, and you don't do it, is it sin? Yeah. And if you turn down what Jesus did for you on the cross, you're responsible for all your own sins. So really, the only sin that God won't forgive is when you say no to him when he's saying, become a Christian. That's the sin that sends people to hell, ultimately. That's the sin, I believe, that leads them to eternal condemnation. Now, maybe you have a different interpretation than I do. That's okay. At our church, we believe that in the essentials, we should have unity. In the non-essentials, the debatable matters of Scripture, the things in Scripture that are unclear, that we debate about we should have liberty we should have freedom that we can have debate and we don't all have to agree on those things but in all things we should love one another let's pray thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church podcast be sure to tune in every week for more new content we'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services to get more information about our meeting times and location please visit us online at www.invictus.church if this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at Invictus.Church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.Invictus.Church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.